Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to this very special live stream on the left lens here. We are going to be doing a sort of one year anniversary panel of last year's Easter Sunday conversation. And it's on anti-Asian racism, the context of anti-Asian racism, the geopolitical context, the history. We're going to be getting into all of it. While you're here, though, before I bring on the esteemed panel, make sure that you're liking this stream as you're coming on. Just hit that like button. Make sure you're boosting the algorithm here on this Friday evening. Of course, subscribe to this channel as you're coming on here to, to watch this uh, great panel. And of course, uh, support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong if you're able. Uh, actually, where Carl Zah is, one of our esteemed panelists, it's already my birthday. So consider giving uh, a, a, you know, a subscription if you are able. But nonetheless, I'm going to just get to the panel here and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. So welcome, everyone. How, how are you doing this evening? Hey, doing well, doing well. Good, good, good. So yeah, uh, how about you, Xiang Yu? How about you uh, start and just introduce yourself, a few words about who you are, what you do. Oh, hi, everyone. Um, thank you, Danny, for having me on once again. And uh, hello again, Carl and uh, Amanda. I am uh, Xiang Yu, and I'm basically just some guy on the internet. <laughs> okay, in, in more seriousness, um, I, I guess... Um, I'm a communist rapper. I rap in Chinese, um, and I through my music and also outside of my music, I like to um, do what I can do to educate people on the realities of imperialism and, in particular, U.S. imperialism, and um, which I guess is tied in with what we're talking about today. So yeah. Great, great. All right. How about you, Carl? Hi, I'm Carl Za. I'm a Twitter shit poster. I also run a podcast. Silk and Steel podcast focusing on China, surrounding regions, history, culture, and politics. Um, and uh, thank you for inviting me, Danny. Uh, yeah. It's great to to see you all, Amanda and Xiang Yu. Yeah, great. And last but not least, Amanda. Hey, I'm Amanda. Um, I'm cat content only on Twitter. Um, I also have a podcast also called Radio Free Amanda, which is what I also go by online on Twitter. Um, offline, I'm an organizer. Uh, I do a lot of organizing against mass incarceration. And it's really great. to Thank you, Danny, for yeah. inviting me back onto this panel. Of course, of course. Well, thank you all for coming back because we have... A lot to get to. I mean, last year was about Easter Sunday, so it's been actually a little bit over a year now since we last came together. And we spoke about anti-Asian racism, and we came together, I feel, because it's not talked about in the way that it should be talked about, right? There's a lot missing, usually, from the conversation. There was this huge upsurge of the Stop Asian Hate movement uh, that occurred last year. Uh, because there was more and more evidence uh, of this violence, this wave of violence that came after the March uh, 2021 uh, murder of, I believe it was six uh, Asian women at a spa in Georgia. And since then, and even before then, there were tens of thousands of attacks since the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States and the Western world 
the hardest. But I wanted to come back together because I want to talk about what has changed. And I want to start with you, Amanda, because you actually tweeted about a recent case mm-hmm. of this just horrific violence that Chinese workers and really uh, workers of Asian descent uh, broadly are experiencing. I mean, in the New York City, it's it's absolutely horrific. There almost seems to be a weekly case. But you spoke about a delivery worker who was recently killed uh, just this month. Uh, do you mind going into that? And, sure. and then maybe starting with this question of what has changed over the last year with Stop Asian Hate? Has, has, there, has anything really changed uh, uh, since then? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and answer that question first. Um, last year, uh, our, during our Easter uh, Sunday panel, that happened immediately after the aftermath of um, the shootings at the three Asian massage parlors. And in the year that's elapsed since, um, I don't really think much has changed. And if anything has changed, it's gotten, things have gotten a lot worse, right? We were subjected to another year of um, the COVID pandemic, which uh, the, our government didn't really have any sort of response to, another year of escalating anti-China rhetoric, which also meant another year of like a huge explosion in anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, I live in New York City right now, and I feel like New York City, along with a lot of um, other cities like San Francisco and Chicago, which have uh, like large populations of working class Asian people, uh, we are all experiencing an unspoken crisis of anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, Just the top of my head uh, in New York City, um, you know, we had Michelle Go, who was pushed in front of a subway car a few months ago. We had Christina Yuna Lee, who um, was followed into her apartment, sexually assaulted, and then stabbed over 40 times. Um, she was Korean-American, 35 years old. And Danny, um, you mentioned um, Yan Ziwan, I believe his name was. And he was a Chinese delivery uh driver. He worked for a Chinese restaurant called Great Wall in Queens. And um, he works seven days a week, um, and which is like pretty common for a lot of working class Chinese people, you know, they don't make a lot of money. So they work quite a lot. And um, a few days ago, uh, while he was delivering Chinese food, someone just like came up to him and shot him in the chest and killed him. Um, and so that that is only the most recent incident of a long string of incidents that have been happening in New York City. So unfortunately, I feel like um, since our since our Easter Sunday panel last year, um, things have gotten like things have only escalated in terms of violent assaults against Asian people. Danny, I Danny, think you're you on, mute. on mute. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that, everyone. I was just saying that, Amanda, I pulled up your tweet from earlier today. 
because uh, you pointed out something that I think is so important. We're going to talk about a lot, which is how the media is covering this, how the Western media, how the corporate media is covering these killings. And here you posted uh, from uh, what seems to be local, uh, quote unquote, local, you know, corporate yeah, New news. New York Post. Right. The, oh, well, the New York Post, mm -hmm. just corporate news then. And uh, you saw you highlighted, right, that the way that they were framing this was that he may have been killed in a simmering beef over duck sauce. So a joke, I mean, a racist joke in the media covering this murder. I mean, what more can we say? I, I don't know, man, if you want to react to that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, and maybe we can talk about this later, but this is like prime example of the way that, you know, Asian lives tend to be tend to be regarded as cheap and disposable. And I feel like, you know, like, that belief um, kind of undergirds our exploitation, right? Um, U.S. militarism occupies and extracts cheap labor and resources from Asian countries. So, you know, our labor is always considered cheap. Our food is always considered cheap. Our lives are always considered cheap. And that this is what's reflected in a headline like this. His murder, which was like awful, an awful thing. And, you know, like that he was a human being. And um, if you read any article about his murder, they interview a lot of people that he knew and they always say that he always had a smile on his face and he always, you know, called everyone my friend. So he was a beloved member of the community and he was a person. And but in this in this uh, story, his life and his murder is just reduced to a cheap racist joke, um, just like something that was that was lost over over duck sauce it, it's just so completely racist and it's so offensive yeah yeah and you and you mentioned too that this has gotten worse and it has uh there is a new study out and i'll pull it up later uh that uh, came out from uh groups such as leading asian americans united for change and the asian american foundation that says that you know, the number of people who are blaming Asian Americans in the United States for COVID-19 has actually increased over the last year from 2021 to 2022. So when you're saying that it's gotten worse, I mean, that's just proven in the statistical data. It's right there in front of you. And these cases, these increased killings and violence against a work especially working people which have also been proven to be more the most targeted right mm -hmm. elderly uh women working people within this community i mean it's uh it's absolutely egregious but i want to move on uh, to our other uh, panelists if they have any any reactions anything they'd like to say before uh we move on to anything else um i just wanted to say um you know what amanda said about the way um Asian people are regarded. You see it from, unfortunately, you see it both from the left and the right. And the way that a lot of the left kind of justifies it, the way I see it is um, they have this sort of stereotypical view of Asians where it's like, oh, we are white adjacent and we're all privileged. And this idea might come from the fact that um, the Asian Americans that are portrayed in the media tend to come from a certain class background or they, the Asian people that they um, are in contact with 
have you know come from families that you know might be in STEM or whatever, and in their minds they don't the the working class what what really oh sorry I'm I'm kind of bad at speaking, I'm not the best speaker but um what really needs to be highlighted is especially working class Asian people are very invisible in this society like outside of for a lot of people outside of you know ordering Chinese food over the phone or going to the restaurant to pick them up they they don't really. A lot, most I think most mainstream Americans or just non-Asian Americans and even a lot of um, like second generation Asian Americans who are kind of estranged from the immigrant communities, they're just not really um, in contact with, you know, immigrant working class Asians. And it's, there, there is a sort of um, divide and they're because they're so invisible. There's this understanding, oh, we're like Asians are just a bunch of like rich people here to um here here who are um you know white adjacent and exploiting everyone else along with the white people or whatever. It's a very reductive way of thinking about these issues, and it really does add to um, the anti-Asian racism that we see. And then to further compounding the issue is you have um, corporate media, the way that they the way that they present like Asian things, they'll have like a few, let's, let's be frank, they're diversity hires. I'm not going to name names because I'm trying to be civil, but I think we all know a few of them. They'll, they'll hire like a few of them who are like, you know, they're Asian in, in phenotype, essentially. They're very, they're very removed from their own cultures, which, you know, it's no fault of their own. And in, in some cases, in other cases, it's an act of choice, unfortunately, due to self-hate. And then um, they'll have them essentially parrot you know, imperialist tropes about Asians that, and then, and, and then you end up with things like, um, what is it? Like a few a while back, there was like this one white guy who went into, um, this Brooklyn seafood buffet and killed a bunch of Asian uncles because he said he was there to save Asian women because you have like, unfortunately you have these diversity hires who like perpetuate certain stereotypes about, um, about Asian cultures and, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, those, those are, I mean, that's, those are really good points. I mean, this is a, this is a can of worms that I think we should open, you know, because this is how, you know, even these mainstream studies are talking about it, that Asian Americans, quote unquote, just Asians in general living across the West, it's, there is this kind of like just lumping all together. So you get rid of the class analysis, the class context, and also the geopolitical context. But I wanted to uh, swing it over to Amanda. I know she wanted to say something. Then Carl, I want to get you in here as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to speak to Sheng Yu's point about East Asian privilege. Um, like just setting aside the fact that privilege is like a very limited analytical framework. Um, what's really interesting that I find about a lot of these like East Asians who talk about this like East Asian privilege is that they will sort of reject the model minority myth, because, you know, it is something to be rejected. But East Asian privilege is basically repackaged model minority myth, right? And um, this like idea of East Asian privilege or model minority myth, whatever you want to call it, it has done immense harm to the Asian American community. Um, because East Asian privilege or model minority myth, whatever, um, it sort of propagates this narrative that Asian Americans, all Asian Americans are upwardly mobile, successful, you know, at least middle class, make a lot of money, 
work white collar jobs, but um, a recent report uh, done by a nonprofit called Robinhood in collaboration with Columbia University, um, it was released recently and um, it confirmed a lot of stuff that we've been saying like the past few years. Um, in New York City, one in four Asian people, one in four Asian adults live in poverty. This was the, what the report said. And researchers uh, of this report found that 23% of Asian New Yorkers lived in poverty in 2020, um, which is comparable to the rate of poverty experienced by Black and Latino New Yorkers and higher than the citywide average of 16% of all New Yorkers. And it goes on to say that the poverty rate of Asian New Yorkers who are 65 or older in 2020 was 28% compared to 23% for seniors citywide. Researchers also found that the poverty rate among Asian New Yorkers with a high school degree or less in 2020 was 33% compared to 27% of all New Yorkers. Um, so there have been um, reports published previously that, um, you know, said that Asian Americans experience the highest poverty rate uh, in this city. Um, if you go to Chinatown, like, you know, you don't see East Asian privilege there. Chinatown in New York City is one of the poorest areas in the city. But Asian American poverty isn't really a problem that a lot of people recognize uh, because of this so-called model minority myth or East Asian privilege. And communities like New York City, Chinatown struggle to get the resources it needs because people don't recognize poverty as a problem that Asian Americans suffer. Yeah, and in Chinatown, I mean, the way that it was hit during COVID-19, even before COVID-19 supposedly, quote unquote, came, you know, who knows how long the virus was spreading in the United States. But uh, even prior to March 2020, because of all of the media hysteria about China and the virus and lockdowns and all of that, a lot of people were already shut, you know, shutting out Chinatown as a destination. And it really, it really hurt a lot of people. And you see in the food lines all across Manhattan, it's, there's a lot of, especially older Chinese women just lining up because, because of how devastating this pandemic has been. But Carl, haven't heard from you yet. We got to hear from you. What's, what's going on? Do you have any reactions? Well, I have been living in Bali for almost three years now. So I'm kind of living uh experiencing america vicariously through through you guys from your tweets and from the from the news item that pop up on my twitter feed and i have to say leaving us and view it from a distance really makes me realize how crazy us is uh, as a place when, when i still live in it you know sometimes you just kind of accept it the way it is uh, but when you remove yourself from it and, and view it from distance, it's it's all these excuses, all these uh, talk about East Asian privilege in the aftermath of anti-Asian uh, violence and crimes. This is just an excuse, right? Like, why are we doing victim blame, blames here? I mean, this reminds me of, uh, you know, I, I mean, Indonesia. This reminds me of the the anti-Chinese program here in Jakarta back in 1998, uh, you know, during the during the um, during the 1998 after the aftermath of 1998 uh, Asian financial crisis. At the time, the common reframe is, oh, because Chinese people control large share of 
the the Indonesian economies. People are just venting anger. But what really happening is the the, the tycoons of the few rich tycoons who actually do control uh, a large swaths of uh, Indonesian economy. They're on the private uh, chartered flight out to Singapore to Australia. Well, you know, before the violence broke out, what the, the people who bear the brunt of the violence are the vast majority of the Chinese Indonesians on the streets. These are like the little street vendors, right? The, 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 just the same working class people that's being attacked in New York, Chinatown right now. And so, so like at this juncture to bring up the East Asian privilege, to me, that sounds like an excuse. I mean, the, the underlying all that, uh, all this rhetoric is that, you know, the Asian don't really matter. The Asi Asians, deserve what they get because they're 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 less than human beings i mean that that this is, has been conditioned in us for oh, god knows how many years now i mean it it's really starts way back from the the, the yellow peril rhetoric back in 1900s not even going back before 1900 going back uh, around the gold rush time right in the, in the in the late 1800s it's always the, the idea that the, somehow the the Asians are somehow less than human. You know, they 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 are always presented. We are always presented as a disease vector, or or we're working too hard to take away other people's jobs. Um, in any case, you know, we're somehow do not deserve a good life in the United States. That that's all all the underlying premises of all these excuses I see to to for the kind of any kind of anti-Asian crime and violence. I mean, it's it's really upsetting for me. Um, but I I'll get off my rant and then let the other panels panelists chip in. Well, I think I mean I think that's that's a really good point because we do have to talk about this history and we do have to talk about the geopolitics or for lack of a better term for lack of a better term for it right because one thing i'm i've really noticed i mean first of all this east asian privilege all of that it sounds like it comes from the same academic institutions that have given us all of these china watchers and all of these kind of pseudo academic journos uh, you know across the board that i know carl you have <laughs> sparred with uh, more than one occasion but it, it really is this for me, what I've noticed across the political spectrum in the United States, that there is this understanding of China, especially as like controlling the United States government as being this kind of all powerful entity that is somehow pulling the strings, right? This yellow peril that is a quote unquote threat to the existence of the Western way of life, the U.S. way of life. And there's no one, there's no reflection or understanding of, of how that impacts the situation domestically right because we can talk about the whole geopolitical uh, situation and we i'm sure we will but even just the impact of framing the situation between the u.s and china in that way reinforces this myth that china is a quote-unquote threat and therefore people who are chinese or associated with china because we know how uh, imprecise racism is they are also representatives of this threat and therefore targets, right? And so there's a whole lot we can get into, but uh, but let's, uh, yeah, Xiang Yu, do you have anything you wanna you wanna add or react to, or, or even just yeah, put into this conversation? 
think um what Carl said about Asian lives just not being seen as valuable. It's um you know when I was when I was younger and I would go back to Taiwan in the in the summer. Sometimes um people there would ask, so um you know do you experience racism abroad? And that was always a very confusing question because um, I mean. What did they What did they mean by it? I mean, nowadays it's pe most people know it's improper to go around, you know, calling people chinks. I mean, I it, it does happen, but it's it's very possible that you can grow up and not get called that directly to your face. But then it's more um, it's it's more of the way that um your culture is framed by a lot of people in in the mainstream culture. Like um, I remember in seventh grade, um, social studies teacher, we were learning about um, we were learning about the Cold War, like rudimentary bits and pieces of it and we got to the korean war and um we learned how um the war ended in a stalemate and how that was only a possibility because mao was this like maniacal chinese dictator and how he had he had um to him he had so many he had like an unlimited army of people that he could just, that he could just throw into korea to to their deaths as if um, you know, these people are just mindless drones and that their lives didn't matter. And it's not because they decided to go um, resist U.S. imperialism and aid Korea because their revolution was on the line. Like, imagine if uh, MacArthur had crossed into the Yellow River. I mean, China was the target during that time. But it's that's besides the point. It's just this sort of framing and it's just so casually um, taught as if it's fact. And people don't really question it, especially if they don't have cultural connections. And or like they might just listen to some um, Asian Americans who also are a little bit estranged or don't really understand these things, which is pretty common. And then they think, oh, well, I have an Asian friend who confirms my biases. So, um, yeah, this is this is fact. And everything else is just um, a conspiracy theory or Russian propaganda or Chinese propaganda or whatever, because that's that's what a lot of people are saying now. If you challenge the liberal imperialist narrative. They ought, before they um, before they even question things, they'll, they'll just be like, "Oh, that's a conspiracy theory," or "Oh, that's you're just a Russian bot, you're you're just a Wu Mao." Like you know, that's that's the way things are nowadays. I also want to just add in uh, to to uh, I guess a shots fired moment. I feel like Promise Lee is just like every like like the media's kind of version of that like like the person who just like comforts on the left is supposed to just comforting all of the you know anti-china hawks uh but anyway, literally I, I, I every <laughs> article that's come out that's about tankies that's come out in the past three months he's interviewed in that article it like like someone should create a bingo card of all of these different tropes of um or like these cliches of all of these anti-tanky articles coming out and he would be one of the squares laos laosan is uh, the tank the tanky watcher <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh anyway anyone want to jump in amanda carl yeah so i mean yeah, I mean that's that's a really good point that Xiang you made though about the the way that this history is taught, how Chinese people are framed, and just how you know people in resistance in that region are framed. And I know Xiang you, I definitely want you to talk about the TPRK a bit before we end this stream, but I also want to recommend that people watch the Battle of Lake Changjin. That's like an amazing film. You can I think you can still watch it on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube. It's an incredible film. 
about it, they, they took it off youtube but you can find it on vimeo i found it a link on vimeo so so just google search it just google yes. search it do it like a video search on the name uh the battle of lake uh Tangjing. so it's i found it on vimeo you can find it it's all subtitled in english it's three hours though three hours yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i'm worried about part two i hope part two is is as good but i'm i'm, I'm skeptical uh but um but yeah let's get into china because in, in the geopolitical context because i feel like this is the missing piece because across the political spectrum you have most people ignoring this, ignoring this relationship between U.S. policy toward China and the rise in anti-Asian racism. It's almost entirely framed, and it's not 100% incorrect, but I think it's simplistic to say that only the spread of COVID-19, this pandemic, has led to this rise in anti-Asian racism. And I think it's very simplistic because it ignores, first of all, the history that you talked a bit about, Carl, that led up to this moment. And also the fact that when COVID-19 was discovered for the first time in Wuhan, already at that point, the U.S. was engaged in a multifaceted, comprehensive new Cold War against China that includes all fronts, economic, military, political, diplomatic, and propaganda. So what do you all have to say about this, this relationship? And, and, and is there anything you want to particularly focus on? I know all of you have done a lot of work on the propaganda side of this so maybe we can start there um i think there there the anti china propaganda and and the anti asian uh hate in us they they mu they mutually reinforce each other right i mean that there's not like uh sometimes it's hard to see which one is a chicken which one is an egg because they they all it, it, it constantly feeds upon each other um and to talk about um you know anti-china propaganda so you know one of the favorite terms uh you know uh, people throw around i see people throwing around in the anglosphere is they call it the chinese people brainwashed brainwashed robots and that term brainwash inter-English language lexicon during the Korean War. And that's because, you know, there were some American POWs who chose to go to China instead of returning to the United States. At that time, the U.S. could not explain it. So they, they come up with this uh, idea that they um, the, the Chinese literally wash not literally but brainwash them into thinking that, that that socialism is is better than capitalism and and let these uh um these uh, innocent poor american pow's be uh be indoctrinated and 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 chosen china instead so that that's the time when the, the term brainwash originated start to enter into the english language uh, uh usage i mean i mean this is like the whole there's a whole history of how these kind of the anti-Chinese racism is permeated in our society from you know from something as simple as a, a, a linguistic term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see it everywhere. Whenever you point out right that people in China, when they're polled by like the Harvard Ash Center, for example. What, what do you think about your government? And 90 plus percent say they approve. You bring that point up. And what do you what are you immediately responded with? It's, oh, 
they are brainwashed. They can't speak out. They're so scared. They're so scared of answering honestly because of the consequences. I mean, it's again this whole notion that China is so so big and so bad that it can dictate and control in people's minds in a way that not even the United States can't because the United States has all of these problems, all these crises, economic, right, right, approval rating for, but yet the approval rating for Joe Biden is so low and the the trust in Congress is so low, right, way below 50%. We're talking about single digits at times with U.S. Congress, media, all of it. There's a deep lack of distrust and such an immense amount of propaganda yeah, China somehow does it better. I, I don't know how they do it. They're they're but anyway, I don't know. Amanda, I, I, do you have I, any? Carl, you can go. Sorry, I, I remember uh, just to piggyback. Uh, I remember there was a U.S. China Watcher panel talking. One of the main topic is is the does is the Chinese government legitimate? I'm like, how come no, nobody, none of these experts pose that question about United States? Like you said, the, the right now, by currently at this time of Biden presidency, he has lower approval rating than Trump during the, the, the exact same, same time period. I mean, nobody is questioning is U.S. government legitimate, right? And, and but but they 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 feel free to project whatever whatever field whatever fears onto China, because China is this great unknown. And, and, and a lot of the time, China serves not as, um, serves as a foil, as this kind of imaginary land that, that we project all our fears onto. And this is great boogeyman. And if you challenge their narrative, you, you get called brainwashed bots, of course. Yeah, I want to return to the point of imperialism a bit later, but I wanted to add to uh, Carl's point about Chinese people being brainwashed and this like popular image of Chinese people as robots. Um, And I think that is part of this overall narrative of China being, you know, too advanced, too technologically superior um, in that, you know, they have, they have created all of this um, technology, technology, which, you know, supposedly they use in the service of like a surveillance state. But, um, you know, this narrative that they have um, sort of passed the West in terms of technological superiority. And, um, you know, a lot of people will say that media representations of China or are Orientalist, um, meaning that they see the East as backward, primitive, fixed, and unchanging. But I think what we're seeing now more of is a kind of techno-Orientalism, which is kind of the opposite, that, um, you know, China is too technologically advanced, um, too robotic, but culturally inferior. So they have all of this advanced technology, but um, they are culturally inferior and they don't know how to um, use it for humanity and for the for the common good. And I think um, you really saw this a few months ago with the Olympics, right? Um, in every video or article that was written about the Olympics, uh, you know, one common image that you saw was 
the Chinese worker in the hazmat suit. Like this was constantly invoked, the specter of the Chinese worker in the hazmat suit. And so in those suits, people become unrecognizable and they look like robots. And so for a lot of Westerners, it stokes a particular fear about how, you know, the communal is prioritized to this extreme in China that all individuality is lost and like they're no longer humans. And you would see like pictures of like people in hazmat suits. You would see um, videos of robots um, disinfecting stuff. And this was, um, you know, people actually saw this as weird, but it's not weird. You know, like they they're trying to um, you're trying to like manage a global pandemic. So it, it seems like perfectly normal to have, you know, like. Uh, robots serving you food or robots doing cleaning, robots do, doing disinfecting. So it's kind of a way that China is exceptionalized. Um, and like another example of this like kind of techno-Orientalism was all of these stories about fake snow. And, um, you know, I guess like the Beijing Olympics, they used like they relied mostly on fake snow for a lot of the like winter sports. And so there was a lot of like scaremongering over, you know, like how this fake snow was framed as a triumph of man over nature and how many gallons of water were used to create it, how much energy um, snow machines consumed. Um, and it was just like basically a way for them to um, talk about China in the context of climate change and how, you know, China is now like the leading producer of CO2 emission. Um, and it's just like a very, um, it's like kind of a dog whistle uh, in that, um, you know, it's like a Malthusian dog whistle about how um, China has an overpop overpopulation problem and, uh, you know, they have to be stopped at all costs. Otherwise, they're just going to consume the Earth's resources. Oh, yeah, this is total projection, like like the, the kind of the, the the fear of technology. The Ch Chinese people actually have a very different attitude to technology than the Western uh, public. I mean, I, I in a way, the you know, it's understandable. A lot of the people in the West have a fear of technology because their government do use technology to survey them, to invade their privacy, to control them. That I mean, this is a go read the, um, the history of the, the secret military history of the Internet, the Surveillance Valley. It's a book by uh, independent journalist Yasha Levin, which actually talk about this. He talk about how Internet was originally designed as a network to keep tabs on people, to to um, to monitor and and to squash any potential insurgency inside United States and and but but when people instead of focusing on what's actually happening in U.S. you know people like to project it onto this China which is a blank canvas because nobody knows anything about China and and if you look at what they actually call dystopian uh, about technology use in China you know you you have the robotic dogs walking along streets in Shanghai, broadcasting messages, um, doing a public announcement, informing people to come out to do COVID tests. Now, the same robotic type of robotic dogs is used 
is in, in, in United States for military and police use. And and those those robotic dogs, you know, there's a I don't know if they have already put it in plans or uh, somebody suggested to use a robotic dog to to patrol the U.S. borders, you know, to to search for to hunt for the refugees who are streaming from uh, to into U.S. from Mexico. And and Boston Dynamic designed this these giant robotic dogs specifically for for the U.S. military. And 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 yet we see ro this robotic dog in China. Broadcasting COVID uh, uh, public announcement to ask people to come out to do COVID tests—that is dystopian, right? And, and so, so again, it's people taking their understanding of their own society, U.S., and projecting that into China. You don't find that when I travel to China in 2019, you know, I do not find the people uh, in China have that kind of the same alarmist attitude to our technology. You know, well, I mean, yeah, because. Because unlike U.S., you know, like because in U.S., other technology is used to control people, right? And uh, but in China, people see technology improves their lives, so that that's a big difference. Yes, yeah, you jump in. I know you've been waiting. Okay, so um, a lot of great points that were made. I just want to go back um and talk about um. I think it was Amanda who made the initial point. Um, oh, now it's all just me, so I feel anxious because I was the other face. It's okay. It's okay. Um. But um how there's um when the approval rating is like a certain number, there's like, oh, the Chinese people are are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of um because everything is so authoritarian. But I wanna ask I wanna um pose this question. Let's look at any major US celebrity. Who who's who's like who are some of the biggest celebrities right now? Can you guys help me out and just drop names? Well, like Beyonce? <laughs> okay, yeah. If Beyonce comes out and talks about the conflict in Ukraine that's going on and talks about it in a way that challenges the, both the U.S. and NATO's narrative, you don't think she's going to get canceled and basically get blacklisted and lose a lot of sponsorships and um, lose a lot of airtime? Probably, right? And this applies even more so to um, celebrities that are not as big as Beyonce. And um, the second point is... Um, Anti-China sentiments, as you guys pointed out, certainly do rise when the U.S. ruling class does feel threatened that it is going to be surpassed in some way, whether whether it be um, in um, international politics, like it's its influence, um, and or economically. I mean, you look at look at Japan in the 1990s. Uh, um, the U.S. was kind of anti-Japanese sentiments were on the rise because there was this fear that Japan was going to surpass the U.S. So, I mean, when you look at China right now, like economically, the way it's handling COVID, the way it's um, running a society, it's objectively observable that um, it's surpassing the U.S. Now, the only way that the U.S. can say, okay, well, we, we're still better in one way is because this, this gets subjective. It's um, the cultural, superior, cultural superiority or inferiority. And when this is all the, when, when this is the only talking point that's left, you know, you have to play up the whole, oh, well, we're culturally superior because we have this sort of liberalism and we have these um this idea of um universal values and human rights this and that and um China doesn't so they're inferior all the while um just not really introducing people to the way Chinese people think and Chinese philosophy and also I don't know just the fact that the two countries are in different developmental stages so you're going to have um different levels of um the conceptions of you know what are universal rights 
this and that. I, I got into it in a previous panel about um, why um, North Korea is in many ways um, more authoritarian than the U.S., but also the context and why the people do accept it and why it's unfortunately necessary. And um, a lot of this is um, kind of pushed to prevent the people in the U.S. from questioning the current system. Because if people are made to believe, okay, well, things over here are failing, our infrastructure is falling apart, you know, there's there's a rise in drug addiction and mental illness and um, homelessness and, you know, things like that, then and people are questioning these things, then they might start looking at alternatives. But if you let them feel, okay, well, of all of the options out there, ours is the least worst, you know, it's, um, it's to prevent people from questioning the system and looking at, cause I mean, China is an example. I mean, I'm not saying, Oh, we look at China if you're an American and you just copy everything China does because every country has its own, has its own history, has its own culture, has its own historical geopolitical context. So it, if you're going to recreate your society or improve your society, you're, you're not going to just copy everything blindly, but there's definitely things that can be learned. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that poses a challenge to the, to the ruling class. And yeah, and also the alarmist attitude that people have in the U.S. is certainly a form of projection because you look at the dictatorship of um, what's essentially, you are entering a stage of high-tech, low-wages, and look at the look at the past elections. I mean, are, are we? You got to be kidding yourself if you're not thinking. Oh, big tech didn't have um, some sway in the election, right? They're talking about oh, Russian Russian memes and bots um, securing Trump's victory. But even if even if that were true, even if that were true, um, isn't the fact don't don't algorithms don't big tech on its in and of themselves influence? the outcomes of elections far more than any individual actor or state actor from like Russia can. That's a question that we should be asking ourselves. Right. And it's um this sort of projection. You can't imagine tech in any other way because um, big tech in the U S serves the biggest of the big capitalists. Whereas in China, you know, it's everything's kind of things are run differently there. You have, um you have the communist party of China that um puts I mean, it doesn't matter how you how you look at it, but profits don't always come before the party. The party comes the the party comes before profits, and what the party represents, well, it's up to your interpretation. But many people feel that um, the party is there to um, to, for the most part, maximize the gains for the people. Yeah, Jack Ma has nowhere near the power in China that uh, Jeff Bezos does. Or Elon Musk, for that matter, and the, like you said, a lot of things projection and copium. I mean, remember a few years ago, the people are still talking about how Chinese cannot innovate, right? This is kind of this somehow China suffers this inferiority. Uh, I mean, like the the cultural the cultural inferiority that you guys talk about because China somehow the Chinese culture is so rigid and authoritarian that people cannot innovate, right? I mean, that's if you still think that's 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 the case, you know, you haven't been paying attention, you know, like like you, you just go. I mean, that one thing I, I uh, realized when uh, when I visited China in 2019 is that in many ways, uh, China is far, far ahead, um, you know, just in terms of just simple thing as mobile payment. Right. I, I traveled to just through China 
through much of South China, all I have to do is uh, pay with my phone, with with my. Uh, I didn't have to carry cash around. I pay. I pay my with uh, with my WeChat. Uh, you know, or or Alipay. It's it. But that that as soon as I cross the border into Hong Kong, and suddenly I have to find. Coins, physical coins, to feed into the you know to to take a metro to take a take a train. I was like, oh my god, it's like feeling like going back a century. But yeah, it's people people just don't. A lot of the, the problem is people in U.S. just don't know. So they they the, China is whatever they want to be, and most of the time they just want China to be this backward place so they can still feel better about themselves. Yeah, and before I want to kick it back to Xiang Yu, but what you were saying, Carl, and, and and you too, Xiang Yu, is just that. I mean, there's this huge divide that, especially among, let's call it the American working class, whatever that is, because we know that it's multiracial. We know that there's a lot of complexity in the working class in the United States, politically, economically. But there is this use of China, this exploiting of this anti-China propaganda as a means to divide working people across the board. And it, it places blame onto China, right, as this anti, as this communist boogie, this new, like, quote unquote, authoritarian dictatorship that, I mean, has been around for a while and, and was a really a, a, a target of the United States ever since the Chinese Revolution. But now... Right now that China is in this very interesting position that I don't think the United States is really prepared for in this uh, technological kind of advanced stage. I mean, when you were talking, Carl, about paying with WeChat and Alipay, I had cab drivers looking at me as I was there at the end of 2019, early 2020. Cab drivers were like looking at me weird. Like they're just like, why are you trying to give me this RMB in paper form? <laughs> like they're like, they were kept on being like, oh, you don't speak Chinese. So I'm just going to point to my phone until you get it that you're supposed to pay this way. You know, <laughs> but uh, but that's how I felt. Too. It was just like, wow, this is not even what I expected. I thought I was going to see a lot more of the underdevelopment, a lot more of the quote unquote contradictions that especially even the left likes to talk about, right? Like China is, uh, you know, even if it's advancing, it's advancing at the expense of people. But you, I just saw a lot of just overall benefit for people in terms of transit, high-speed rail, in terms of how uh, people were able to, for example, get very heavy subsidies on things like electric cars and renewable energy. I mean, it was... It was really interesting, and people were very confident too. And they would always, they would ask me, "Hey, are you scared about being in the United States right now?" Because people are just getting shot up there. And I'm just like, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. But uh, Xiang Yu, I know you wanted to jump in here. So um, Carl talked about how there is this sort of um, perception that Asian people or Chinese people in general, or Chinese people or Asian people in general, are not creative and cannot innovate. And part of that. Um, part part of that um, kind of um, misconception comes from the fact that for the longest time, economically, China was kind of um, was the was a factory for the world because it was, when it was still building up its economy. So of course, um, you know, education wise and stuff, people were more were more for, were more focused on the skills that were required to get that stuff done to get um, like manufacturing 
and that sort of stuff done for foreign companies. But then after it reached a certain economic point to the point where it can it can actually start innovating, that's um that's when there was a sort of um cognitive dissonance when people when they realize oh Chinese people are not just innately robots or not in innovative. It's because there were different um priorities in the economy at different points in time. And now that it's at the stage where innovation is a priority and they're doing a pretty good job at it. That's when people are starting to feel threatened. Yeah, Amanda, do you want to jump in? Uh, maybe I'll jump in and sort of like talk a little bit more about the geopolitical context and Please. the link to this uh, rise of anti-Asian assaults. Danny, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the show, um, about uh, this new uh, study that came out talking about um, the rise in anti-Asian violence and how it's really escalated. Um, so I've read a couple of articles about that study. And I think what's really remarkable about that study is that um, the CEO of the nonprofit that you know published this study, the leading Asian Americans United for Change, he actually said that um, he actually implicated media representations of China and anti-China news stories as um, largely a reason for this spike in anti-Asian violence that we're seeing. And he said, he said, politicians need to be very careful with all this bashing of China because it directly influences how people view and treat Asian Americans in the U.S., and I think this is, I mean, I think it's really remarkable because this is really the first time um, in like something mainstream that we have seen uh, someone say that this China bashing uh, directly um, is a reason for the rise in these anti-Asian hate crimes that we're seeing. And, you know, I think, you know, I think that's, you know, good news that um, this someone in the mainstream is finally admitting it, right? Because for the past two years, what I've seen for the most part is a lot of people arguing that there's no evidence that this um, anti-China media coverage is what's causing all of these hate crimes. And a lot of people were seeming seemingly wanting to, to like see a direct link. Um, that, you know, like a Washington Post article uh, bashing China was the reason for Christina Unilee's death. You know, like, you know, her murderer read a Washington Post article um, that was anti-China, and that's what led him to sexually assault her and kill her. And, you know, as we know, the link is not that direct. Um, what this kind of anti-China new Cold War coverage does is it contributes to an existing atmosphere where Chinese and Asian people have historically been dehumanized, and that's what makes them more vulnerable to attacks. So I just wanted to point that out because, um, and so and so far as like people were, um, you know, bringing up China, they they were just saying that um, this spike in anti-Asian violence was due to Trump referring to COVID as the China virus. But as we all know, that's a really a historical view of anti-Asian racism um, because, you know, 
Chinese people have been vilified in the like Western imagination, you know, since Chinese people have immigrated here to like pan for gold, like back in the 19th century, right? Um, yeah, and that's, I'll leave it at that. So, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump didn't make that up out of his head. I mean, that's just, I mean, every, all the liberals would say, ah, oh, Trump is so stupid, but yet the whole framing of like Trump being this individual that created that kind of like sparked this wave of anti-Asian racism gives him a, not a, just a whole lot of power, but also I feel like a whole lot of credit for something that has such a long history and really does, as you said, Amanda, it does connect to this new Cold War propaganda, which has policy to it, right? It's on, it's not just ideas, right? I, I, you know, I, it's I, an old Marxism, Marxist dictum that it's not just ideas just don't come out of nowhere. But Carl, yeah, I'll, I'll let you jump I, in. I think Trump is popular in some circles because he says the quiet things loud, right? I mean, like, it's not like the... Uh, the, what he says are just, um, you know, Trump takes credit for making up of all the things he said. These kind of means have always existed, but for a long time they're being suppressed. You know, people understood it's not, uh, it's not something to to talk about in polite conversation. But racism has always existed in U.S. and and what Trump is doing is just amplifying the existing racism that's al already there. And what the um, um, what Amanda said earlier about mainstream media finally admitting to the link between the sinophobia they whip up in the in mainstream uh, media versus the anti-Asian crime on the street is that it's it's hard to cover up anymore. It's so in your face, right? I mean, like anytime they report a, a COVID outbreak in Chicago or New York, they put a picture of of a uh, street view of Tokyo, of Hong Kong, you know, of all these East Asian people wearing masks, you know, it has nothing to do with the article itself, but visually it, it, it links again, uh, you know, Asian people to COVID. They, they have, they've done it again and again and again. I mean, this is not a coincidence anymore. Um, so I, I think I'm glad it's been, that's, that's been called out, but it's really hard to deny that anymore. I mean, this is what they, uh, you know, what Trump created is an atmosphere where all these people felt it's safe to do so. It's safe to come out and, and say all the racist things and to do this right in the open. Right. Kind of making it, it used to be privately, right? It just happened in the day to day. People wouldn't talk about it, but then. Donald Trump used his pub very public forum to give expression to something that has been just running rampant. And I want to get into why, you know, I think one thing that is, well, I think the, a big thing that is ignored, it's like the why, like, why is this actually happening? I mean, COVID-19 is used as this very, I mean, it's very convenient. It's a huge crisis. It just so happens that a lot of the framings around COVID-19, given the long history of linking disease to Asians, especially Chinese, right? This real racist Orientalist trope. But then there's like the why, the the context of it, and no one's really talking about this, the policy, right? What is the U.S. policy? What is the policy that is being engaged in by the West toward China and just in the region? Because I, Xiang, you, I want you to jump in here at some point. So I want you to also talk about the DPRK because this is a, 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 a real imperialistic 
I feel like propaganda war that targets China for very specific reasons. And, and let's get into that because, you know, I, I know we've got like half hour and go a little bit over that. But, you know, let's get into this because I feel like this is part of the meat of this conversation. Whoever wants to start. Well, before um, we get to the next topic, can I just add my final thoughts to what Carl was saying? Go ahead. I think, um, you know, what Carl said about Trumpism, you know, if you think about it, what Trump, everything that Trump said was extremely tame in comparison to what was said on Comedy Central in the 2000s. Wouldn't you guys agree? Oh, you guys are. Anyways, um, the, you're on we're mute. All, we're all muted. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think. Carl saying that what he did was appeal to the masses. There is there is some truth to that because there um I think people really embraced um Trump's kind of open bigotry because as a knee-jerk reaction to the sort of PC culture that really flourished during the Obama era, that was, you know, that was very performative. It really did not seek to solve problems at their root. It was filled with virtue signaling and it was really promoted in um academia and like college campus circles and the way that people would go about it was um they would learn a few things about privilege and then talk down on average you know working people saying oh you're problematic you're this that but then not really engage in good faith and try to address these issues and help them you know grow as people but to just absolve their own white guilt on an individual level in the most performative manner possible and um that stuff turns people off and then unfortunately, although their intentions might be good, the result is you have this sort of knee-jerk reaction that, you know, gives rise to what we saw during the Trump, what basically got Trump elected. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm done with my thoughts on this topic. Sorry. And we can move on to the imperialist thing. <laughs> no, I think that, I mean, it's, it's important, right? It's true that the kind of the kind of this liberal framework, this neoliberal quote unquote identity politics, whatever we want to call it, it does just so happen to fuel it by decontextualizing, ignoring class, ignoring imperialism, just ignoring the realities and, and not offering really anything except perhaps some select careers for people in think tanks and DC and whatnot. That does, I think, only strengthen and make imperialism, make this aggression toward China more effective. But let's let's talk about what what is this? What is what is happening with the U.S. and China right now? What is what is the United States doing that really requires this rise in anti-Asian racism? Because I don't think it's a coincidence that the U.S. just so happens to call. Uh, I think the CIA director William Burns has called on numerous occasions China the greatest threat to the United States's. Uh, national security and uh, future. So, so I don't know who wants to start, uh, either Amanda or Carl. It doesn't, well, I I just want to say, <clears throat> you know, then you have to define what is U.S. national in, uh, interest, right? Uh, people use that term a lot. What China's rise does not threaten is uh, the average life of average Americans, right? They always present China's rise as some kind of existential threat, but existential threat to whom? Um, China, China's rise is a threat to, <clears throat> to all the people who, um, uh, who climb on to the U U.S. hegemony. Um, in a way, I, I don't even think China's rise is a threat to the people who profit from the 
from the military industrial complex because <clears throat> China's rise for them it just means more fodder for amping up the China th- uh, you know amping up the China threat to justify more defense spendings you know like you know to keep keep piling on on the trillion dollar uh, defense budget that or, we already have so I, I it's uh, it's pretty ludicrous statement but um, uh, you know the, you have to keep in mind it's uh it, this is a right now the china threat is a large grift it's it's a tr- literally trillion dollar grift for people to to hype up so they can keep on uh keep on milking the <laughs> keep on keep on milking all these trillion dollars we we spend on defenses rather than improving uh infrastructures and healthcare inside united states yeah man jump right in yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up imperialism because in order to address this crisis of anti-Asian hate crimes that we've been seeing, we really have to, you know, go and address the root of the problem. And what I've been seeing in a lot of the media response is that there's been a fixation on apportioning individual blame onto like individuals. And um, they often sort of fixate on the motivations or criminal histories of the killers. And by kind of uh, put placing blame on individuals rather than the root cause of the problem, which is imperialism, it leads people to these really reactionary places and these really reactionary conclusions. And so in New York City, this plays into this pro-cop agenda of um, Eric Adams. And um, it creates a situation where we have to be really careful in the way that we talk about this because Eric Adams has been ordering like a lot of, he's been ordering a bunch of homeless encampment suites across the city. And he's also enlisting more cops to kick out homeless people off the subways. And he is using this crisis um, of uh, anti-Asian violence to like pump more money and legitimacy into the NYPD and into building more jails. But you know, as we've all said, imperialism is uh, it's the root cause of it's the root cause of this problem. It's imperialism and resource extraction, right? It was Western plunder of China, which impelled migration of Chinese workers to the U.S. in the first place. And, um, you know, we've been talking about, um, you know, the history of anti-Chinese sentiment in the U.S. Well, anti-Chinese, anti-Chinese racism is as old um, as Chinese migration to the U.S. itself, you know. Um, after the my immigration wave, white labor saw Chinese people as competitions for jobs, and the Chinese were subject to racism and lynchings, <clears throat> and they formed their own settlements, um, and those settlements uh, became Chinatowns across across the country. And so there were a lot of racist laws directed at Asian people, including like the Page Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And actually like May 6th today, um, that is the anniversary of the signing of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. So, you know, that you had this happening. And then meanwhile, imperialism is continuing in other Asian countries and around the Pacific. Like the Pacific is the most militarized 
region on Earth. It has like over 600,000 soldiers stationed. And it's like U.S. militarism that occupies and extracts cheap labor and resources from Asian countries. And like U.S. militarism is the greatest purveyor of anti-Asian violence, like, like full stop. Like what is the greatest purveyor of anti-Asian violence than the U.S. military, right? Um, so um, you have, uh, you know, we can talk about like wars in places like Korea and Laos and Cambodia and, you know, the U.S. dropping bombs on all those countries, which, you know, killed family members and destroyed entire villages and forced women in those countries into a sex trade industry serving American soldiers. And so this is like another route of where of anti-Asian racism, right? This is sort of where this image of the fetishized, submissive, sexualized Asian woman comes from. It stems from this sex trade industry, this prostitution industry serving U.S. soldiers that um, emerged after the U.S. bombed and destroyed those countries. And so, you know, this is I was talking about uh, earlier in the show about the devaluation of human lives, of Asian lives and labor, Asian labor. And so entire industries are built on this tacit assumption of like Asian disposability and devaluation, especially of Asian women. Um, you know, uh, the military sex trade industry, like I was saying before, um, sweatshop garment industry, you know, obviously rife with exploitation and abuse of, a, you know, a largely Asian immigrant workforce, the domestic care industry um, in New York City. There's a labor struggle going on in Chinatown where uh, this nonprofit is forcing their largely Asian immigrant workforce to work 24 hour workdays. Um, and so you know, this is like the history of anti-Asian racism that uh, this anti-China propaganda right now like fits into, which is it's, it's a part of. And so I think, you know, we can't really address anti-Asian racism until we identify the root cause of it and, you know, pull it out by its root. And we can't really do that if we are focused, you know, solely on you know placing blame on individuals yeah no those are i mean those are all really good points uh you know it just it to me it's peak racism i mean to, this is the most dangerous form of racism when americans quote unquote or just people in the united states because of this propaganda because of what they think they know about the region they they can so easily point to China and be like, China is this, China's doing that, China's imperialist, China's bad, China's killing our drugs, all of these things. When the United States has this extensive history that continues on into this day of terrorizing this region, right? You were talking about Amanda, the, the mid 19th century period, the migration. Like, what was causing the migration? Well, China was thrust into what they still call the century of humiliation, and all of that was uh, was facilitated by western powers various western powers seeking to carve up china use opium as, as a huge weapon in that and the u.s likes to say well we weren't that involved we were just kind of there you know uh, but they but they were very the united states was actually 
involved. It just wasn't the power that uh, it ended up being maybe a century later. But nonetheless, this idea that the United States was all this blood on its hands, literally you had during the Korean War, you had Douglas MacArthur himself having to uh, appeal to 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 uh, Eisenhower, I believe, or is it Truman? Truman at the time saying, "There's too much racism in the military right now. These soldiers are using the word gook and they're just slaughtering people. Like that's how bad it was. That's how that's how much racism was such a weapon is such a weapon for war, and it's continuing on now with how the United States is approaching China." All of these anti-communist tropes, this quote-unquote totalitarianism, Chinese people are brainwashed. All of this just serves an imperialist agenda. It serves what Carl was saying, right? Fueling the military-industrial complex, trillions of dollars worth, the vast majority of which are going, right, and directed to this region of the world, directed at China. Uh, but it doesn't really receive any attention. And so... You know, I don't know if Xiang Yu, you want to jump in or Carl, but but I think that to me it sickens me because it's this element I feel that is really fueling the racism that we see. But not many people want to touch it. Um, by the way, today in the United States, where you guys are, is May sixth. It's the hundred fortieth anniversary of the signing of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, was signed on May sixth. 1882. It's the only law in U.S. Uh, <laughs> that that targets specifically a nationality uh, is to to exclude Chinese from from U.S. And as you mentioned, um, uh, 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 as you as you mentioned earlier, that it's at the worst of violence that the West has done to China. Uh, you know, right around um, 1900. Uh, Boxer Rebellion, when the Eight Nation Alliance, basically it's a, a group of Western countries plus Japan, invaded China, seized Beijing, and th- that's the time when the Yellow Peril uh, propaganda reached a peak. You know, it, at the t- it's it's kind of the the I, I I like to say it's kind of the the reflection, maybe like a a we a, a very perverse reflection of a guilty conscience right when the western troops are actually brutalizing chinese people in china they concocted this uh yellow peril threat to the white european civilization right and how china is a yellow horde is gonna gonna take over and that was of course you again used to justify the the western imperialism in china itself and and also i like to point out the worst link mass lynching on U.S. soil was 1871 Los Angeles massacre, where 19 Chinese, uh, where 19 Chinese people were were murdered. So this is this is this is a, there's a long long history of the anti um, Chinese racism uh, in in United States, and now that's just getting taken to now. Now it's not just affecting just Chinese people. Now anybody who look remotely east asian is getting targeted right we we have filipinos we have burmese we have uh you know even even uh, a sri lankan and then and the hispanic lady who got mistaken for chinese was being attacked so this is the reality of the united states 
never really changed uh, to never really changed that much since since 1871. Yeah, yeah. Xiaoyu, you want to jump in? I think most of what needed to be said was said, mm -hmm. and um, I just wanted to add on to what Carl said. Yeah, things haven't really changed. It's just the ruling classes. The ruling class is better at doing its um, PR right now, and what we're seeing is, um, you look at, you look at corporate American culture. You look at like what is essentially their, what their diversity training. Do they really are they really trying to um, promote this sort of um, national harmony with uh, with the different peoples in America, or are they just really, are they really just trying to give capitalism and by extension imperialism a woke makeover? See, that's the biggest crime. Um, um, of Trump in the eyes of these um, neoliberals is um, he was um, kind of undoing their woke makeover of imperialism. And I wanted to go back to the point that Amanda made about the way women were viewed. I think, um, I think one great example is you look at the way women from the Soviet Union were portrayed because um, back when it was the Soviet Union, when Western capital couldn't really penetrate the, um, the economy there, the women there were portrayed as like these like rough, like big babushka, you know, but then as soon as the Soviet Union fell and um, Russia became this sort of neoliberal hellhole, what is what, what became the um, perception? It became oh, like hot, young, sexy mail order brides. You know, it's not a coincidence. Like these ideas don't um, don't just fall from the sky. They're rooted in material reality. And to go back further, what Carl said about um, China, I think Carl and Danny were both talking about why the the um, the ramping up of hostilities with China is um, well, China does not threaten the average American, and this is a point that we really that really needs to be made to um, average Americans of all backgrounds, because um, most people in this country, the vast majority, stand to benefit from mutually beneficial relations in a multipolar world. And this is a threat to the ruling class that's trying, the, the neoliberal, the neoliberals who are trying to like enforce some liberalism on the rest of the world and this sort of cultural and political and economic hegemony. And China and also Russia, you know, Iran, showing the world that an alternative to neoliberalism and liberalism in general is possible and the biggest crime is that it is one an independent country, but two an independent country that rejects liberalism. And this is why attitudes towards Russia changed so drastically after um, um, Vladimir Putin came to power. Because um, you know, like I said before, Russia was this neoliberal hellhole with you know state assets and everything being sold for next to nothing after the fall of the Soviet Union. And although Putin is not a communist, nor is Russia a socialist country. Putin is an illiberal who reorganized the economy so that there is some semblance of independence, you know, by the creation of um, reorganizing the economy, you know, creating Gazprom, whose profits were then used to rebuild the country and bring its GDP back to the level where it was before the fall of the Soviet Union. And yeah, I, I, I just like to interject for one second. Um, even depiction of Putin went through a drastic shift in U.S. media because in late 1990s i'm old i remember that so so in even in late 1990s uh when putin first came to power u.s tried to portray putin as this uh, a tough guy but our friends you know like because that's when 
Putin went to Bill Clinton and personally asked for Russia to join NATO, right? Of course, Bill Clinton laughed in his face, but but at that time, Putin's uh, and Russia was portrayed as as a, as a friendly nation, and Putin was portrayed as this this really tough bastard. But he's he's our friend. You know? This is what we need in Russia. But that perception then start to change when uh, the the relentless NATO expansion toward Russian border actually forced uh, Putin to take a more assertive role. Um, and, and that that's when now we, that the the narrative suddenly shifted from Putin the tough but good guy to this uh, <laughs> evil authoritarian dictator. So 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 this the, 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 yeah, just, yeah, it just shows you how U.S propaganda machine can flip on a dime right and and this is good like i you you can if you live long enough like i have <laughs> you can see it all in action <laughs> i think uh, yeah. public opinion is very malleable and i remember in you know you late 90s i still kind of remember okay i was in 1999 to 2000 i was in first grade i remember we were learning about the continents you know, like you have Europe and you have Asia and then Russia is like the country that's in both continents. And we were also learning about the American Revolution and like how we're a free country. And um, I, I, this was tied together. Our teacher, Mrs. Gregory, I wonder if he's still alive, but um, but she was like Russia used to be a dictatorship, you know, and a dictatorship is when you have a dictator who says on Monday you have to wear yellow and on Tuesday you have to wear black and on Wednesday you have to wear green. But now they're but now they're becoming a free country, and it's like well, nineteen nineties Russia was a, it sucked. <laughs> I wish I had that guidance, honestly. Like, tell me what to wear, please, because I don't I don't want that pressure on me anymore. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think these are these are all really good points. Like, I mean, we're talking especially what you were talking about, Xiang Yu, about this uh this connection between the rise of china the the character the social and economic character of china and now we see russia right because china and russia have this major alliance now and it is moving the world in a different direction it is moving the world in a multipolar some people are calling pluripolar direction it is this alliance is providing the economic and the political capital necessary to actually have what was the dream of the anti-colonial movement around the world, which was sovereignty, which was independence, which was not being controlled and dictated over by colonialism and imperialism. And that is now coming into fruition in this modern era where I think a lot of this pearl clutching around technology, right? Oh, what are the... China stealing all the patents, right? That's Pompeo and those folks love like to say. Even, you know, you have these Matt Stoller types saying, oh, the China, because there's U.S. investment in China, that it's controlling corporations here and then dictating U.S. politics. I think a lot of that is this, this inherent fear of a country like China, which has certain indicators and markers and goals and has a system that is fundamentally different from the u.s system is looking to alleviate poverty is looking to fight climate change is looking to have a more peaceful world have a world that's characterized by peace that's a that's a pretty big threat to a u.s way of life this imperialist way of life that needs kind of the opposite of all of those things for people like you know, Jeff Bezos and, and these types for them to continue to get rich from the military contractors to continue to get rich for 
for the the ruling class to continue to get rich. But uh, yeah, anyone want to jump in? Uh, a lot of the blame China rhetoric is a deflection from criticism of Chinese uh, of the capitalist system itself, right? I mean, the U.S. working class did suffer when the U.S. Uh, multinationals decided to offsource the manufacturing jobs outside the United States. First, it was to the U.S. Uh, Asian client states, you know, or in in uh, you know, like the first Japan. Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and when China opened up its economy in the in the 90, 80s and mostly in the nineties, and all these multinationals and rushed to to move their manufacturing plants to China because China was even cheaper. The, the, the labor, the land was even cheaper than what they had access to before. Again, this is a nature of capitalism. They they the capitalists will always chase the highest margin, lowest cost, right? And uh, from, from Chinese point of view, there are, uh, their, their point of view is they if you build it, they will come. They know if they build up their infrastructure, these companies will come in and, 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 and build their factories there. But here we are, uh, oftentimes we, we just, it, it just got simple, simplified into China is stealing our jobs. Right. And that's that's kind of the, the, the Trump crowd um, is uh, is banking on to, to just just make it very simple. China is now now that same rhetoric is being adopted by the Democrats as well in the United States, by the way. And, and it, it became China stealing our job as rather than this is what capitalism does. This is the, the capitalist will always chase the highest margin, lowest cost. This is, you know, when. <clears throat> when the first globalization happened, it was happened under a U.S.-led world order, and and all these U.S. multinationals willingly chose to move their uh the, the manufacturing base out offshore, and and they moved to China because China at that time provided a large labor pool, or a highly educated labor force that's working for cheap. This is I'm talking about back in 1990s, and. And and then you know U.S. start to offsource, uh, you know, call centers and and then and the, the the programming coding to India, right? This is what what capitalists do, and 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 of course you know, because government like China, they 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 perfectly understand that dynamic. They they know if you, you know, the the capitalists they will sell you a robe to to hang themselves. So so they they use that to their advantage to develop the Chinese domestic economy, right? That's something that our U.S. elite is not doing. We are pouring massive resources. U.S. is today still a very rich country, still one of the richest countries in the world. But instead of developing our own infrastructure, uh, you know, providing universal health care, we devote insanely amount of money towards, towards the military industrial complex. Because these are the people who have voices in Washington. There, you know, it's Lockheed Martin, it's Boeing, it's uh, it's a uh, Raytheon, it's uh, and all their the the their founded think tanks that dominated our <clears throat> our media landscape, right? And then they quote some some pseudo leftists like Thomas Lee, right, to support their arguments, uh, and you know, to present to put an Asian face on it. So this is what what's happening today. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to get you in here, but I just want to say that. You know, I think 
uh, you're exactly right, Carl. This is an incredible projection. It's deflection for for the weaknesses of U.S. capitalism. But I mean, I want to get you in here, and you know, I'd like I'd like to go for another like twenty or so minutes. So you know, please do all of you get in anything that has not been said yet. You know that you would like to, or just to add on to what has been. Um, but yeah, Amanda, go right ahead. Yeah, just to jump in on Carl's point about the military-industrial complex, and returning to Russia-Ukraine um, with the uh, case of Russia and Ukraine, those links of government to uh, the military-industrial complex are right there in front of our faces, right? Um, representatives of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon have said publicly that this war in Ukraine has been a, a boon for business. And they will often have representatives of, from Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or another like defense contractor go on cable news television and um, they will act as a political pundit. Um, you know, comment, commenting on the war in Ukraine, but uh, it will never be revealed that um, they're actually a representative of these defense contractors. Um, but it's obviously like, um, uh, it's, you know, like, it's, it's very dishonest because you, they want to sell weapons. So this war in Ukraine is, you know, great for business for them. And, um, you know, just the other day, there was a video going around on Twitter of Joe Biden um, speaking at a Lockheed Martin factory uh, just before uh, he announced he was authorizing another however hundreds of millions of dollars going to military aid to Ukraine. Um, and literally every week, uh, the U.S. government authorizes another hundreds of millions of dollars um, um, of military aid to Ukraine. So first of all, like the idea that it, this common talking point among, you know, the Western left, that we should send weapons and money to Ukraine doesn't really make much sense to me because we're already doing it. We are already sending like hundreds of millions of dollars in aid every week. Um, another thing that, so, you know, these are the same uh, people, these are the same companies that are behind a lot of this like anti-China propaganda, right? Other people have made the point that um, the New York Times and usually like every anti-China article or op-ed, um, you know, th uh, they interview a person from the Atlantic Council or uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, or there's like an op-ed in the New York Times written by one of these think tank representatives, but they never mention that, you know, these think tanks are funded by these like military contractors and they have, um, <coughs> they have a business interest in selling weapons, in escalating this anti-China rhetoric, in escalating this war rhetoric, because it is really, really good for business. Yeah, and I was trying to pull up, actually, while you were talking, uh, Foreign Policy Magazine, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Kronig, from, he's the deputy director of Atlantic Council in February 2022, and I'll pull it up after 
I speak here a little for a second, but he wrote an op-ed about why Washington must wage war on Russia and China simultaneously. And he's the deputy director of NATO's Atlantic Council. And this is this is how these forces think. And you're exactly right, Amanda, to point out about how influential they are in shaping ideology and in shaping policy. I mean, they, they are kind of the de facto uh, lobbies of the military industrial complex. There's this information arm of this lobby, which helps manufacture uh, all of the consent to use uh, the old Chomskyan uh, term. But, you know, I think that one thing that I wanted to just mention here is that this it, this threat of war with China, I think is so underestimated, right? Because now we're in the heat of this Russia-Ukraine situation where Russia felt compelled to, you know, to invade Ukraine uh, based upon this large context. I, I don't see China making any kind of move in that situation because I don't think China is really in a position geopolitically where it really has to do that. Uh, people are saying Taiwan is a situation. I know, Carl, you probably have a lot to say about that. And so you telling you, but, you know, Taiwan is not an independent country. Taiwan is a part of China. It's a completely different situation. Uh, it's 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 almost like to me even more baffling given how much you know, these old weapons are just like sent to Taiwan and <laughs> right uh, now right. The, the country that's most gung ho for for a, a cross Taiwan Strait war right now is United States. I mean, yeah. if you look at the, look at the news U.S. news, they talk about a possible Taiwan invasion like all the time, like every two days you get an article. It's, it's, but you don't see that the same in the Chinese media. Nobody in, in China is talking about sending the PLA into Taiwan, you know, on, on like the Chinese official media channels. So, so it's U.S. right now. You It's almost like the U.S. military industrial complex is begging, like, please, please, Beijing, please send PLA to Taiwan so we can, you know, have another war making profit uh, opportunity. I mean, like to, to go back to what uh, Amanda said earlier about sending weapons to Ukraine, that that's not even to that's not even helping Ukrainian people. That's just to get more no. Ukrainian people killed. It's it's this is a proxy war U.S. is waged to kill to kill Russians to the last to fight Russians to the last Ukrainians. Right. And, yeah. and that's the same strategy they want to do in, in Taiwan. You know, it's like U.S. doesn't care if Taiwan get devastated. In, in a war versus mainland China, and and there was actually um one of the I forgot which 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 uh, which which foreign policy magazine uh, article now, but they actually openly talk about in case of a war breakout, the first thing they they should do is to to um to destroy the Taiwan semiconductors uh, facility on Taiwan, so so China does not get control of the chip making making capabilities. So this is how people think about it. They, they don't think about uh, how you know Taiwan will utterly be devastated. Actually, a, a, a in a war scenario. This is why there's actually not to you know people. I, I don't I don't know. Maybe Taishang, you can speak to that. I mean, I the sense I get is like. People in Taiwan right now is really not that concerned um, about about an imminent war breakout, and all the freakout is you see happening is in Washington Post, in New York Times, and 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 a lot of these article you know ties back to all these uh, 
various think tank authors. And and as something you also, you guys, both Amanda and Danny mentioned about Atlantic Council dominating our mainstream media channels. Now their narrative has been challenged by alternative media like YouTube, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, et cetera. Now they're trying to control social media. You know, mm -hmm. Atlantic Council is yep. partnering up with Facebook and Twitter to censor quote unquote disinformation, right? right. I mean, in ASPI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which uh, we've all talked about on separate occasions, I know. Nathan. It, <laughs> right, Nathan, our, our boy, Nathan Rooster. He, you know, that that think tank also has a partnership with Twitter to also, you know, take down and target so-called Chinese disinformation operations or or whatever things that you are called, Carl. But but, you know, the ASPI is funded by the Australian Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of State and all of the military contractors that you could think of and you know carl you know you were making a very good point about ukraine uh, about how much this the u.s fueling and pumping weapons and aid so-called aid quote unquote into ukraine it's not free all of the it's like it reminds me of a more i mean this is a more neo-colonial situation i think than during like the second world war but the u.s did this during the second world war though with the lend lease program they provided weapons they provided a lot of military assistance to the so-called allies and when it was all said and done when europe was destroyed and the u.s created this Bretton Woods system they told the european former colonial powers to pay up and that's what's been happening ever since i mean and that's part of this dollar imperialism in ukraine uh i was already in this dire straits economically through the imf and the way that the u.s since 2014 the coup has been manipulating and 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 really putting ukraine under its economic thumb but it's only going to get worse right because this isn't free these aren't free weapons and this isn't free free quote-unquote aid it's all uh, going to be expected to pay back and it's going to be shock therapy for ukraine and the for the u.s they hope to be able to do that and they are doing that across uh, the NATO region, especially with the Eastern European and, you know, uh, uh, regional statelets that, that are in NATO. But uh, Xiangyu, you want to jump in uh, about uh, Carl when he was talking about the Taiwan question? Um, I forgot exactly what I wanted to say, but um, if you, I want people to think about this fact is that according to top brass in the U.S. military and uh, reports by the Rand Corporation, which I mean obviously isn't trying to um, isn't trying to pump up China or anything like that. In the case of a war breaking out between the two sides of the strait, Taiwan would probably last less than a week. So I mean, the U.S. knows this. So why is it still pumping weapons into Taiwan and promoting escalations? Because here's here's the thing. Beijing is not interested in um, in immediate reunification. It wants to because it, it wants to um, create a situation where the people in Taiwan will want reunification and it wants a stable reunified China. It knows that it knows if it wanted to reunify China by force, it could do so at any time, no problem. But the problem is by doing that, you're going to create a Taiwan that's even more even more capable of destabilizing the rest of China than currently. You know, so. That is why it is my belief that the U.S. the U.S. doesn't care about whether or not Taiwan's like um, falls as the way they would say falls under the um, the rule of Beijing. In fact, it kind of welcomes it because then you look at you look at Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong, Hong Kong wasn't like returned to China by like by force, but it was done so in a time where 
the cat the, the the um the contradictions of capitalism really revealed themselves after the return so then people will think back to you know the times before before um um chinese leadership when it was still a british colony and then they'll look at now and then they'll look at the decay of capitalism and they will the cpc becomes an easy scapegoat and a lot of the problems in hong kong honestly stem from the fact that too much of the old system has been kept intact and i mean beijing is smart enough to want to prevent that with taiwan so the last thing it wants is reunification by force but rather it wants to continue strengthening economic ties across the strait which is happening which is also why liberals in taiwan are um kind of more vocal about things because they do feel they do feel threatened that things are going to change because the world as they know it they do feel the power a shift in the power dynamic you know it's it's quite reasonable so i'm not too concerned about this and taiwan is not ukraine like you mentioned and the leadership of china is not the same as the leadership of russia it's uh, unless things that are just completely unpredicted happen we're not going to see the same situation going on there that's my belief but i also yeah. russia wasn't going to um enter ukraine so who knows well carl is going to rejoin in a second but I, those are i think those are all really good points about the taiwan situation I think we're running into the, I think, closing, let's say, let's say closing statement period. So each of you have a few minutes or so to just anything that has not been said. For those of you who are still watching, make sure that you're liking the video, of course, subscribing to the channel, and please do support uh, this work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. But I'll kick it over to Amanda, you know, a few minutes, anything that you would like to get in here that hasn't gone in here yet. And uh, then we can move on to Xiang Yu. And then when Carl's back, get to him. And then I can close things up. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess, I, guess uh, I want to end with like maybe a call to action. Um, or, you know, like I don't want to end it on a real, on like a very pessimistic note. Um, uh, you know, I guess like one thing I want to say is that you know, we were talking about East Asian privilege uh, earlier in the show. Um, one thing that I do want to mention is that, like another thing East Asian privilege does is that it um, kind of ignores the um, like links that um, revolutionary Chinese people made with like other communities like at that time. Um, ignores uh, revolutionary groups like um, uh, Iwur Kwan, I think I've, I think they're called. Um, they're like a revolutionary group um, in Chinatown in San Francisco who um, did a lot of um, mutual aid uh, programs and like breakfast programs. They were like very inspired by the Black Panthers. So, um, you know, like the model minority myth and uh, uh, East Asian privilege kind of ignore those uh, like groups um, doing like revolutionary work at that time. Um, so what I would like people who like talk about East Asian privilege do is um, sort of get involved in uh, like get involved in work that's already happening in Chinatown right now. You know, there are a lot of, you know, what links up, what I think, 
um, we should do is think about things that unite us across communities. Like, you know, Asian people are also subject to police brutality. Um, like Asian sex workers are subject to like surveillance and police brutality. Um, there is like, a, there are a lot of different labor struggles going on in like New York City, Chinatown right now. Um, I mentioned the labor struggle earlier of like um, the Asian immigrant workers fighting against the 24 hour workday that um, this nonprofit called uh, the Chinese American Planning Council um, that are forcing them to work uh, these 24 hour workdays so that there's that going on. There is the Jingfong labor struggle. Um, Jingfong is the largest dim, it was the largest dim sum restaurant in Chinatown. And it was like one of the few restaurants in New York City that had like a unionized staff. But um, Jonathan Chu, the landlord, um, during the pandemic, he decided to close down that restaurant, putting everyone out of their jobs. Um, so, uh, there's a picket in front of the Museum of Chinese in America, like every Sunday, and I think like a few other days during the week. And they picket in front of that museum because Jonathan Chu um, is, he sits on the board of the Museum of Chinese in America. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can go there and you can show support for like Chinese working class people. Um, and you can like link up with people there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't think, I, I really want people to, you know, be spurred into action and actually do something uh, to try and address like this crisis of like anti-Asian racism. I don't want to be pessimistic and say that, you know, this is something that like can't be tackled. Yeah, yeah. And Carl, you're back. But I think we'll go to Xiangyu next. <laughs> uh, but no, those are I mean, that's I think that's really important, you know, and, and uh, at the end, I want all of you to plug your stuff as well. You know what people should uh, where people should find you guys. But Xiangyu, any closing remarks? And then Carl? Yes, I have a few closing remarks. Not really brief. But before I start them, um, one of my friends, Carl, my um, all four screens, I want to see Carl's reaction. My, <laughs> my Korean friends asked, what is up with Carl's background and the quality of his video? He's going to make, we're talking about stereotypes. He's going to make the world think Chinese people are all on 56K. This, my, my wife actually made this wonderful uh, uh, background for me, uh, my, including the plaque for my uh, uh, podcast. So, so thanks to my, my beautiful wife. Exactly. That's what I told him. But yeah, I wanted to see your reaction. And um, closing remarks, I just wanted to say um, the same people who lied to you about, um, you know, who are lying to you about about NATO and Russia right now while um, gas prices are rising and there is an imminent food shortage that's going to come um, in part um, because of, um, you know, sanctions on Russia and the lack of availability of fertilizer as a result. And a lot of things lied about the war in Iraq, lied about you know, Syria and um, Assad and lied about Gaddafi. They're also the same people who are lying to you about how, about, you know, East Asian privilege, this, that, and the other. Because here's the thing, um, the vast majority of working class Asians, working class Asian immigrants don't speak English. So you're not going to be hearing a lot of, um, you're not going to 
hear a lot of their voices in the media. So I want people to just really, the same way you challenge your belief about everything else I mentioned, just please question what you're hearing about, you know, these issues that we that we spoke about today. Yeah. Yeah, you you are more qualified to speak uh, about working class uh, Asian American Xiang Yu. You actually work in the you know, Chinese restaurant, right? I mean, you you work you interface with working class <clears throat> Chinese people in in America every day. Um, and so I, <clears throat> what I want my concluding remark, I just want to say, like for the people who live in the imperial core, right? What what we can effect most, be more more effective, is to demand to hold our own governments to accountable, to demand our own government to be more responsible for happenings inside United States. <clears throat> you know, we, we should not be worried about what's happening abroad. You know, when is the last time U.S. interventionism has done anything good, right? So we, instead of, uh, you know, answering the call, so, oh, we got to do something about this. We got to do something about Syria. We got to do something about Ukraine. No, this is why do we have to do anything? We have all the problems that you guys are intimately much more familiar with, with the actual problems inside the United States. Then, <clears throat> then problem in faraway lands like Syria, Ukraine, or Solomon Islands, which most of the information, frankly, came from all these pro mainstream propaganda channels. So let's focus on improve U.S., make it a better place. And you, you know, this is where you can actually exercise your democratic rights to demand your government to be more accountable, to, to invest more in the communities rather than weapons, uh, you know, sending weapons abroad. That's that's just my my pitch. Yeah, yeah, no, and I appreciate I appreciate that. I think. You know, the the overarching message for me is that this this can be framed, as you said, Amanda, as a very pessimistic issue. Right. Because all you hear about in the media, because that's what will get the clicks and the hits are. Well, this and, and it should be talked about. Right. This person was assaulted. This person was murdered. Uh and then, of course, the media headlines about how China is so bad. China is coming for your lunch, right? That China is this huge, quote unquote, threat. It does bring this very cloudy atmosphere. But for me, I feel like this period is a very hopeful one in the sense that, for one, all of the efforts that you were talking about, Amanda, and also that framework that you gave, Carl, I mean, it 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 really is becoming i think more and more simple and basic to understand right that there is a struggle going on that there is a, a possibility to fight back against this and all of its connections and, and that there is a i think a very easy line to take i think uh, carl that you articulated so well is that we can demand that our government and that our and and confront our system in the crimes against humanity that it commits at home and abroad and link those two together so that it has some relevance to people's day-to-day -day lives. And uh, we have a situation, I think, around the world where whenever you have the United States so infuriated at another country like China, usually it means it's doing something right. And that is happening right now at a scale that I don't think uh, most people 
in the United States and in the Western world have any understanding about because most people were so propagandized during the latter half of the Cold War. They didn't understand the role of the Soviet Union. And now you have a situation where most people don't understand what the role of China is, right? How China is uh, sort of uh, doing its thing, how it's organizing itself, how it's successfully containing the pandemic, how it is uh, uh, economically growing at a pace and addressing uh, an unprecedented pace and then addressing things like common prosperity and poverty alleviation and, and doing its part as a major, now a major political and economic power in the world to fight climate change. I mean, none of these things are talked about. And then also leading the charge toward a world that actually places peace as a priority. And, and this even goes, I, I was uh, listening to you earlier today, Carl, on Rob Rousseau's show, uh, and you were saying that in, in there, there was a conversation about China's role as, a, as actually promoting peace and taking a real neutral position and saying, we promote the UN charter and self-determination. And, and that is a very consistent policy. And, and that should all give us hope internationally. And then domestically, what can give us hope is, I think, everything that you said, Amanda and Carl, is that there is a possibility to fight. There are opportunities to do so. This isn't hopeless. And with a struggle, with oppression uh, comes resistance. So uh, I want to just leave the last minute for all of you to plug your stuff uh, before before we close here. So, uh, okay. Amanda, how about you first? Or unless, Carl, you want to respond. Well, I Amanda. just wanted to add, add a last thing. You know, the U.S. imperialism... And improving average, uh, improving life standard of average American domestically. These are incompatible goals, right? I mean, the, 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 there are people who are um, <clears throat> on quote unquote progressive left are saying now, now you know, use U.S. China competition is a is a good uh, a, a shot in the arm to make you know to make America great again, uh, but. Look, why do we even need U.S.-China competition to motivate us to make U.S. a better place? You know, you, improving U.S. should always be the top priority to improve the average life of the average people in the United States. But, but people need to understand that is incompatible with the U.S. imperialism abroad because it takes away the resources. All our resources are, are diverted into the military-industrial complex to funnel a way to 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 not only make our uh only make bring misery to to millions abroad but also make uh, uh the, the, the actually actually have an adverse impact on the life inside united states so um is I, i'm my rant is over thank you <laughs> where can people follow you carl carl follow you um, i'm on twitter uh i ship post a lot so uh go to it's just my name, Carl Za. That's my Twitter handle, and uh, I, um, I, I sometimes I, I post on Facebook as well. Um, I have a podcast, the Silk and Steel podcast. Uh, uh, much of the free content you can find it online. It's on all the um, podcasting platform, iTunes, Spotify. But uh, please check out my Patreon because that's my main source of income right now. Uh, how I support my family in Bali. So go to Patreon and search silk and steel or just type in silk my my podcast should be the first uh link that pop up and most of my uh most of my content is on my patreon site so thank you cool 
So uh, how about Xiangyu? You want a, a closing remark? Uh, well, I mean, a plug, and then I know you had a thought. Yeah, I'll do the quick um, closing remark first. Um, if none of what we said resonates with you, and you just really hate Chinese people, and I can't really change your mind on that, so you do you. But if you really hate us Chinese people, and you don't want us in America, then the best way to prevent more Chinese people from entering the U.S. is to stand up against destabilization attempts against China. Because the better China's economy does, the less likely Chinese people will want to leave China. And um, you don't need to view things as a zero-sum game. Um, there can be win-win cooperation between the two countries. If, but um, it doesn't just fall from the sky, it needs to be fought for. And um, if you want to, if you like what I said, or if you want to engage in flame wars with me, though I'm trying to, do, trying to be better with that and not engage as much, you can follow me on Twitter at um, NotXiangyu, that is N-O-T-X-I-A-N-G-Y-U. You can follow me, follow me at Instagram at, um, at ComradeXiangyu. And um, my Facebook page, it's mostly in Chinese though because it's for my audience in Taiwan. Um, Facebook.com forward slash ComradeXiangyu. Weibo, same thing. Facebook, I mean Weibo.com forward slash ComradeXiangyu or at XY. Zhong is in traditional. And then um, YouTube youtube.com forward slash xyz rap i'm gonna be um releasing new music videos soon should have been shot but um covid situation caused the shoot to be postponed to next week so i'll be back in new york where danny and amanda are pretty soon hmm. so yeah, and also xiang yu has promised <clears throat> once he finishes the music video and finish it with his album that he will come back to the Silk and Steel podcast to continue our <laughs> Korean War series. So I'm going to you, hold you to your promise. Album. It was promised after I leave the restaurant, but the restaurant, one of the restaurants where I work, but it's still not being sold because the buyers are really finicky. I haven't met more finicky people, people in my life. But. <laughs> well, it's, it's always epic when you two get together. That's for sure. It's always Yeah, epic. so people put pressure on Xiangyu. And, and we, uh, I think the free episode of our, our uh, Korean War series and our Taiwan series is on my YouTube channel. So I, I, I forgot to plug my YouTube channel. I do have a YouTube channel, just Carl Za and all the good stuff is there. So cool. Cool. All right, Amanda. All right. Uh, I also have, well, you can follow me on Twitter at cat content only, which is what you see in my name right now. Um, please follow me. Uh, also, please check out my podcast. It's called Radio Free Amanda. It's now on Spotify. Um, but also check out the Patreon. Um, I also encourage you to subscribe to the Patreon because like Carl, that is my main, that's my primary source of income. So would really appreciate it if you subscribed. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely check out uh, everyone's work here. I mean, this was a really great conversation. Uh, thanks so much, of course, to the esteemed panelists. Good friends of this program friends in general uh follow all of their work of course you know before you leave here make sure you're liking this video and you're subscribing to the channel you know uh, if you can give a, a birthday subscription to the patreon at patreon.com danny this is a good way to kick off i mean if i were in bali right now i'd already be celebrating my birthday but i still got one day to go uh i wish i were in bali i wish i were anywhere but here sometimes but you know how it is uh but nonetheless, you know, this was a great stream. Thank you all so much for coming on. And, and uh, be sure everyone to subscribe. Hit that notifications bell so you know uh, when this channel is going live. And you know that YouTube is throttling the hell out of... I mean, 
social media, we talked a little bit about it. We're all getting throttled right now. All of us here, one, two, three, four, all four of us. The algorithms are not our friends because of what we talk about here. So make sure you're, you're keeping aware, keeping a pace of what we're doing and checking out all of our work. But thanks all so much for coming on this Friday evening out here in the U.S. Eastern Time. And uh, I will be live again soon. But peace out, everybody. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Danny. <laughs> I was hoping you'd sing it. <laughs> Take care, everyone.